We read in God's inspired word this evening, 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you, We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God, and whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, 
even as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. The text to which I call your attention this evening is verses 6 through 9 of 1 John 3. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we stand before a powerful text tonight. We have seen in our consideration of 1 John that at the very heart of all true religion is the doctrine of the covenant. God taking us into the fellowship of his own life and love through Jesus Christ. That's life eternal. And the fountain and basis for our joy in the Christian faith. In fact, the apostle calls attention to this truth that our joy might be full. As we began to give attention to this third chapter and have heard the first three verses expounded, as well as having heard the entire chapter read, we've seen that for the experience of that joy and proper for proper Christian conduct, it's necessary that we live in the consciousness of who we are. So God works in us by faith and by his Holy Spirit. Our Heavenly Father would have us know what manner of love he has bestowed upon us in giving us the place of children in his family. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Not are going to be sometime in the future, maybe when we get to glory. We are now. And obviously, if you know that, and that's the knowledge of faith, if you are living in the awareness of that amazing place God has given you, living in, in the arms of our Heavenly Father's love, that has an impact on your life. One of profound importance and one that's readily seen as the fruit of faith. That's the theme that's now brought to the foreground in chapter 3 and in the section that we consider today. But the text that we consider is one of the most controversial passages in Holy Scripture. 
interesting it should be made such because the apostle here is very plainly warning us against heresies that would lead us astray when it comes to living the Christian life. As there are heresies that would attempt to lead us astray regarding the person, the nature, and the works of our Lord Jesus Christ, so there are heresies regarding the doctrine of the Christian life, the doctrine of sanctification. But as we approach now this text, we must notice that the call to holiness is established upon a solid doctrinal foundation. And again, that doctrinal foundation is that of God's covenant of grace. Godly living is a consequence of living in fellowship with God our Father and His Son Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the theme of our sermon on this text is abiding in the sinless one. Our text calls attention to our great predicament. That, first of all. Secondly, our wonderful deliverance. And finally, our expressed thankfulness. Underlying this text is our great predicament. We have seen the wonderful truth of our union with Christ, the essence of our covenant relationship with our Heavenly Father. With Christ, the sinless one, we are now one. We confess to abide in Him. We are in Christ by a true and living faith those whose salvation is in Him alone. We abide in Him by faith, that faith worked in us by the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ. And therefore that union with Christ, as I've explained before, is not only a legal union whereby we are viewed one with Him in the judge's dealings with us, It is that, and that aspect of our union with Christ is a beautiful and amazing truth, a truth that's emphasized in a passage such as Romans 5. But our union with Christ goes beyond that legal union to include a union of nature. As a husband and wife are made one flesh, inseparably mingled together as the ingredients of a cake or a loaf of bread once baked cannot ever be separated out again. So Christ and we are one. Not to the confusion of personal identity. We are one spiritually, partakers of Christ's life. He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit, we read in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. I have pointed out before, in connection with 1 John 2, verse 28, 
that the idea of abiding in presupposes an existing relationship. I shouldn't have to expand upon that tonight, but it's necessary. It's necessary because my teaching in that sermon on 1 John 2 verse 28 was slanderously misrepresented and falsified a couple weeks ago by Nathan Langerak. And many of you heard that. As I said in that sermon, our union with Christ is the possibility and certainty of our abiding in Him. To portray me as teaching that your activity realizes the potentiality, the possibility that the union with Christ has given you is such a despicable lie concerning what I taught that God will judge it. As you well know, I've never taught that. Never does God's work provide potential which realization depends upon us. I don't know of anyone in our churches that has ever taught that. And as an aside, to say that in God's work with us, certain things come first, as Scripture clearly teaches, is not to say His work depends on our activity. But in 1 John 2, verse 28, there's a clear distinction between our abiding with Christ, which is by faith alone, and our abiding in Him. To, in order to abide in Christ, to abide in Christ, one must first be in Him. To abide in has to do with a union, therefore, between us and Christ that has already been established by the power of God's grace and which cannot be dissolved. God has done that. God has established that union between us and Christ. Unbreakable union. That unbreakable union is established by faith alone. 
What is it now to live in that union? Abiding in Christ has to do with our conscious participation in that fellowship that is ours with him and therefore with God our Father. And that's evident from the fact that in chapter 2, verse 28, the call to abide in him, that's an admonition or an exhortation. The call to abide in him is a verb form of a present active imperative. Yes, that call to abide in him is a call to activity. Something which appears to be anathema to those who have left us. God, by his Holy Spirit, efficaciously calls us to the activity of faith and the fruits of faith which not only keep us from wounding our own consciences and losing the sense of God's favor, but more positively, by which our faith is strengthened and confirmed by those fruits as which show it's a genuine faith so that we know the fullness of the joy that is ours living in God's fellowship. As such, therefore, abiding in Christ, that is, conscious participation in his fellowship by faith, is to hold steadfastly to his gospel, to live in complete dependence upon him in faith and hope, and to walk in faithful and loving obedience to him. That's our life as Christians. As partakers of Christ and his benefits. And that's in harmony with the last part of James chapter 2. It is this abiding in Christ that establishes with certainty our being partakers of his grace, his strength, his life, the life of him in whom is no sin. But this is where we get into the difficulty of this text. A difficulty in the relationship between what the text says and what we see in our own life. Because the text sets forth an absolute fact in verse 6. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Verse 8, he that committeth sin is of the devil. And again, verse 9, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. 
You understand, I trust, how these passages are proof texts used by those who maintain that the life of the Christian is one of sinless perfection. And so this text makes us immediately feel most uncomfortable. Because we know full well we're still sinners. And when we are brought to stand before the penetrating word of God, as we were this morning in considering the ninth commandment, we're left without any avenue of escape in ourselves. We cannot but confess our sins and forsake them too. But we sin. So we stand before this great predicament. We have to deal with this text, which seems to teach that if we are true, if we are Christ, we cannot sin. It would seem on the surface of things that there are only three ways of interpreting this. Either it's possible for a Christian to live without sinning, and not only possible, but a must, which thought would certainly leave us without hope and put us outside the realm of being Christian. Or we might say, God doesn't see sin in us, which might persuade me that my sin isn't really sin after all. The third alternative is to look at sin as as only the outward act. I once had a man tell me, I've never sinned. But when I asked him what he meant, he made clear that his view of sin was merely superficial. A matter of blatant outward activity. Because he had never murdered a person, because he had never gone to bed with another man's wife, hadn't robbed a bank, in his view he'd never sinned. But that was the view of sin taken by the Pharisees which Jesus not only condemned, but which he set straight by careful instruction in his Sermon on the Mount. So we come back to the question, does does this text teach sinless perfection as a necessary attribute of one who will go by the name Christian? But then understand, well, that would also contradict what he had written in the first chapter of this epistle. Because in 1 John 1 verse 8, we read, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And again in verse 10 of that chapter, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, And his word is not in us. As we face this predicament, we must remember that the first rules of Bible interpretation are to consider carefully the grammar of the text as well as the context. 
When we consider the grammar or the language of the text, we find a most important factor in a correct understanding of this text. All the verbs used in this section speak of a present and continuous action. So that when the text speaks of committing sin, it speaks of one who keeps on sinning, who sins habitually, who persists in impenitence. The reference to sin here is the most general reference to sin, that of missing the mark. That mark is God's glory. The doing of his will. It's one thing to take aim at a target and to miss. It's quite another to miss and to be told what is necessary not to miss the mark, but to continue to shoot haphazardly in whatever direction you might feel like pointing while calling yourself a child of God. That's also to violate God's law, as verse 4 reminds us. Sin is also the transgression of the law, that is, its rebellion against the Most High and Holy God. But the point here is that the one who lives to do his own thing, the one who in the, is the one who, in the words of this text, committeth sin. He walks in impenitence before God. And when we turn to the context, we find that this interpretation is confirmed because the text we are considering actually finds its beginning in verse 4 where you have direct contrast to verse 5. Or to verse 3, rather. The one committing sin, the one walking in sin, stands antithetically opposed to the one who purifies himself. And that one who purifies himself is the one who lives in hope, realizing the blessedness of the place God has given him among the children of God in his own covenant family. Our text calls attention to the stark contrast of the one living in hope. The sharpness of that contrast is emphasized in verse 8 with the words, he that committeth sin is of the devil. He lives, therefore, in utter hopelessness. Because Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And yet this one who committeth sin bears the works of the devil in his own flesh. That's what he lives for. He lives, in other words, in enmity against God. That's not true of you, is it? You don't persist in sin, do you? A particular sin, one that you might even be inclined to love. You realize, of course, we cannot say we have no sin. We live with a conscience grieved by our sin. You do, don't you? 
rather than persisting in sin, rather than living to yourself, doesn't that sin fill you with disgust? Disgust at your own weakness, your own sinfulness, your own failure to live to God's glory, and don't you fight against that sin? Confessing and forsaking it? That's the life of one who abides in Christ. Little children, let no man deceive you. The apostle is going to emphasize this. He will not have anyone deceived because it's a very dangerous deception that teaches that a believer in Christ can persist in impenitence and be forgiven. Be not deceived. To persist in impenitence is to defile the very name by which we are called. And that's also to tempt other of God's people to walk in ways of sin. The life of the Christian, the living out of which we confess by faith, is a life of righteousness. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin, again, he that walks in sin, who persists in rebellion against God in any area of his life, is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. Again, sin is portrayed in terms of missing the mark of God's glory. And when a person does nothing for God's glory, doesn't seek God's glory, but rather seeks self, he makes clear he's not of God, he's of the devil. Because that's the very character of the devil. All he does is sin. His root sin was pride. So he lives in deceit. Deceit of self and deceit of others. He's the slanderer of God, as his very name indicates. But as he is, so are his children. Lovers of self, whose ways are corrupt, who persist in rebellion against God, by not seeking his glory nor his will. Quite different is life for you who are partakers of the covenant life of God, members of the body of Christ. When you understand that, then you have faced this great predicament that initially confronts us in this text although we still find in ourselves much sin and recognize even the sinfulness of our nature, with humble sorrow of heart, God has given us to see our wonderful deliverance. 
We are those who abide in Christ. We abide within that fellowship of his love into which he has taken us. We abide in him who was sent by God for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Many are those works of the devil. Those works have piled up from the beginning of the world. And especially are those works revealed through men. And that's so because Satan was able to take men into his own embrace through the fall of the first man, Adam. He was able to find a ready ally, as it were, in the sinful flesh of fallen man. Flesh which was sinful, not as created by God, but as punishment incurred by the guilt of Adam and all men in Adam. And the punishment of sin was death. And being dead in trespasses and sins, every person was subject to the influence of the devil and his hopes. The Son of God, he who is God in the flesh, came into the world to destroy the works of the devil, so that there would be nothing left of those works. And Christ did so, not only by taking upon himself our flesh and blood in the incarnation, and showing himself powerful to withstand all the temptations of his great adversary, the devil, but having borne the punishment of our debt to the death of the cross, he arose the victor over sin and therefore over death, the wages of sin. By his resurrection and ascension into glory, where he received the Spirit without measure for the sake of his entire elect church, he also took away the power of sin so that believers principally, and I want to come back to that word, in believers there's nothing left of the works of the devil. The Son of God came to destroy in you that sort of doing or working which you have derived from the devil himself, that persistent ungodliness, which is the essence of all the life and activity of those who are, are Satan's. Indeed, Christ came to make us his own. To make manifest that we are his. And therefore members of the family of God, so we are partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1 verse 4. Members of the family of God. We've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and now are citizens of the kingdom of light and belonging to the kingdom of light. We walk 
in the light. We're not sinless or perfect. No. But we are walking in the light, not in darkness. While not sinless, we are a holy people. Even when we sin, we find in ourselves a deep, appalling hatred of our own sin. We're sorry before God for the offense that we've committed against Him. And we fight against our sin. We struggle constantly against the sin that characterizes our old sinful nature. We're grieved at the weakness of our sinful flesh and at the readiness in in which we stumble and fall into sin. We pray for deliverance. And in all these things, all these things are so many fruits of the life of Christ in us. If I may sum it up, the apostle is saying, if you are truly born of God, if your life is in Jesus Christ, your whole life is affected in a profound sense. Because your life is in Christ, in whom is no sin. So the whole attitude of your life, as well as your actions, are governed by a different principle the desire to live unto God. You cannot go on sinning. You cannot continue to walk impenitent in that particular sin or those particular sins that characterize you in the past. But there's something more that we must see in this text. The inspired apostle is reaffirming the truth we pointed to earlier. Namely, that what really matters in life and what really marks the Christian life is not what you do, first of all. It's who you are. It's living in the knowledge of faith, the consciousness that you are a child of God a partaker of His covenant life, uh, His love and fellowship, because you abide in Christ. And it's true, then there is the element of doing. But that's not first. What you are is first. When you have that straight, the doing will follow. And must. We must realize we abide in the sinless one. I'm not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. When we forget that, it's easy to go astray. When we don't live, in the 
the knowledge of our divinely established union with Christ, and that against the weakness of our own sinful flesh, if we aren't living in dependence upon Him in watchfulness and prayer, we are liable to fall into the most lamentable sin. And Scripture warns us of these things even by pointing us to the examples of David and Peter and so on. But then we can see as well that the text emphasizes not only the importance but the wonder of abiding in the sinless one. Robert Candlish, a Scottish preacher who lived some 200 years ago in his exposition of 1 John, called attention in this connection to what I consider an important comparison to what we shall enjoy in glory and what we possess now as the children of God who abide in Christ. We all recognize that one of the chief characteristics of heaven shall be its sinless perfection, perfect holiness. How we long for that. There shall be no sin there, nor any possibility of sinning even. What will make it impossible for us to sin? A change of place? Will it simply be a matter that our environment will be different? After all, what a tremendous change that will be. To be rid of Satan and all who serve him? To have no more devils, no more children of disobedience drawing us with their intoxicating vapors of disobedience and ungodliness to be rid of the influences of the world that constantly seek our attention and conformity. Why, it shall be the fulfillment of of the psalm that we sang a little while ago, Psalm 124. We shall be like a bird escaped from the snare. The net is rent and so escaped are we. It will be indeed a different atmosphere in heaven compared to that which so often deadens and paralyzes our Christian life on this earth. But let me remind you, Adam lived in a perfect paradise too. And it wasn't a change of scenery, his expulsion from paradise, that made him capable of committing sin. He sinned in paradise. Nor will it be that great change of place and environment that makes us incapable of sin. Rather, God will change our vile bodies. Our nature will be changed. 
that sinlessness must be an attribute of the saint himself or herself. As one perfectly sanctified in his whole nature, so that his will is perfectly free to do only the good. It seeks perfectly the will of God. Our life will be that which was described in verse 2 of this chapter. Namely, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the fulfillment of the joy that we look forward to and sing about in the last verses of Psalm 17. I shall be satisfied when I awake with his likeness. But people of God, do you realize we have that already now? We do. We have that principally. Here we come back to that word. I mentioned earlier that Christ has taken away the power of sin so that in believers, principally, there's nothing left of the works of the devil. Now when we use that word, principally, you might get the impression that we're speaking of something abstract, something theoretical, or at the very least something that's true from God's perspective as he looks upon us in Christ. But that would be a very wrong impression of that term. That term principally speaks of a fundamental truth, that which belongs to the reality of our present circumstance and situation. But it speaks of that which is true as a beginning. And speaking now of our wonderful deliverance, the idea is that we enjoy that deliverance already now. It's real. It's life for us. But we also look for that deliverance to develop and to become more and more evident until we enjoy the full realization of that glorious truth. That wonderful deliverance is put in these terms in the last part of verse 9. His seed remaineth in us who are born of God. And therefore we cannot sin because we are born of God. Now notice the apostle speaks here of all Christians. He's speaking about the grace of regeneration. He isn't saying there's a higher class of Christians who abide in Christ. If a man is not born of God, he's not a Christian. If a man is not in Christ, he's not a Christian at all. The Apostle Paul set forth the same truth in Romans 8 verse 9. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. One who's not born of the Spirit, one who is not in Christ, is not a Christian at all. But this is also true. 
You cannot be in Christ one day and out of Him the next. If we are born of God, His seed remaineth in us. And because we are born of God and because His seed remaineth in us, we cannot sin, again, cannot persist in impenitence. The characteristic of those who are still in their natural state is that they are children of their father, the devil. They go on sinning. They dwell in sin. The whole atmosphere of their life, as it were, is one of sin continuing. When you are born of God, when his seed remains in you, it affects your life in a profound sense. You've been made different. You've been put into a new realm. You are new creatures in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. As I pointed out earlier, that does not mean you no longer sin means you're walking in the light so that when you fall, you have no peace in the way of sin. And although it is possible to be ensnared for a time, yet that lack of peace and the power of the Spirit's work in you, that seed remains in you, draws you to repentance, to confessing and forsaking your sin. There's always that struggle between the life that is in you, the life of Christ, and that old sinful nature which you carry in this earthly tabernacle. That demonstrates that our wonderful deliverance has placed us on a high level Our life is hid with God in Christ. It's in heaven. And while we still fall into sin, we don't stay on the ground. We rise up again. The figure of a seed is significant, therefore. It points to the way God has chosen to work, not only in the realm of nature, but in our spiritual lives as well. In the realm of nature, you sow a seed realizing that life is in that seed. But you also know that seed must develop, must grow. So in the Christian life, we are taught about being babes in Christ. Receiving the new birth. But we're also pointed to the reality of growing and developing. Growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctification. That's what we're talking about here. Is a work in progress. What is perfectly established in the cross and in our union with Christ by faith 
is yet a work in progress when it comes to our life in the midst of this world and our Christian experience. The encouraging truth is that that God himself has not only begun this work in us, he's the one who continues it and brings it to perfection. It's his work. He does so by his word and spirit. By his gospel, he reveals our sin to us. His spirit opening our minds and understanding. He calls us, working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so he calls us to abide in Christ. And he shows us that abiding in Christ is the way in which we enjoy peace. The way of overcoming sin in this constant battle that is ours. So there is found in our lives the expression of thankfulness. Our expressed thankfulness is found in how we live. For we who are righteous do righteousness. One is righteous, of course, when he is found in Christ. That righteousness is imputed to us by God. That righteousness is our state of justification. But the text also speaks of doing righteousness. And moreover, it places that first in the wording of the text. We mustn't be afraid of that. That's because when God justifies us in Christ, He also makes us righteous as to our spiritual, ethical condition, as to the way we live. For only when we do righteousness can we know that our faith, the faith by which alone we are justified, is real. It's only in the way of holiness that we see God, that we enjoy His fellowship, that we know that we are righteous, and that not because of works, but because of the evidence of the life of Christ coming to expression in our own walk of repentance and faith, our doing what is right is an expression of thankfulness to God for the life that we enjoy abiding in the sinless one. And so much is this a part of the Christian life that the text tells us whoever claims to be righteous and does not walk in righteousness is a liar. He deceives. 
and therefore also to guide us in our expression of our thankfulness to God. The text calls us to look heavenward. Where is our life? Because that's our comfort. And John's purpose is that we might see the fullness of joy. He would put us in the consciousness of that glorious union with Christ, that we might abide in Him, that we might purify ourselves as He is pure. And so we realize that there remains a rest to the people of God, the full realization of what is ours in Christ even now. The seed, which is already ours, principally as a seed sure to come to full fruition, shall finally be seen in the full accomplishment of Christ's perfect work when all the works of the devil shall be destroyed completely and there shall be seen in the new heavens and the new earth nothing but the works of God, the God of our salvation in Christ. That glory is sure, and it's ours. For Christ's sake, amen. Gracious Father, we thank Thee for the wonder of Thy work of grace, for saving us, giving us Christ's life, working in us by thy word and spirit so that we can see in our own lives the activity of that life of Christ and rejoice in the salvation that is ours in him. In his name we pray, amen.